Thanks for listening to the Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Medical School. Our guest today is a passionate advocate for women's rights, women's reproductive health care, and what a time it is to be on the forefront and on the front lines of these really important issues. Dr. Lou Ireland is an obstetrician gynecologist at UMass Memorial Healthcare and an assistant professor of OBGYN at UMass Medical School. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Really happy to be talking to you today. You wear a lot of different hats and I'm eager to talk about all of them, but I want to start with your personal story, your, sure. your personal path to medicine, because recently we were chatting and you recounted a formative experience that you had way back in elementary school, and I'm wondering if you can just share that. Absolutely. So I think my initial spark of interest in women's health started when I was in third grade, and it revolved around the topic of how babies were made. You know, I grew up in a very conservative family. My parents are both immigrants. Uh, my father's from Vietnam, my mom is from Mexico, and sexual and reproductive health has always been a very taboo topic in not my family. Not dinner table conversation. Not <laughs> dinner table conversation, not any time conversation. <laughs> I had grown up with the belief that babies were made when a man and a woman kissed and a man planted a seed in the belly and that grew into a baby. And you know, believing that my parents know everything, I thought this to be true. In third grade, I was at my friend Laura Drew's house and I had a conversation with her about how babies were made. And we got into a little bit of an argument because her opinion was a little bit different. She, in fact, knew the correct way <laughs> of how babies were made. And, you know, we both went back and forth about who was right. And in typical young child fashion, I tried to resolve the argument by saying, let's just both be right. <laughs> and um, Laura would s was steadfast in her belief. And she said, no, Lou, that is not how babies are made. There's a penis that goes into a vagina and that's how a pregnancy is made. So I marched home and I talked to my mom and I said, guess what Laura told me today? And I recounted the entire episode and my mom was quiet. And I said, what do you think mom? And she said, well, Laura's right. And I still to this day remember the feeling of betrayal that I had in that moment. I didn't understand why somebody would mislead me about a basic function of my own body. So that was a pivotal moment when I realized very important things about women's bodies are not discussed openly, and I didn't feel like that was very fair. And I continued that line of thinking throughout my career. That's really incredible awareness for an eight-year-old. So how did you take that and carry it forward in terms of you know going on through high school and in college? I don't think I revisited the topic specifically until you know I got to the age of puberty and me and my friends started having crushes and being interested in boys and I remember what was prevalent in our social interactions prevalent in our discussions was the feeling that we just didn't know very much we knew that it seemed like everybody was having sex and I literally didn't feel like I understood the mechanics of sex, let alone the consequences of sex or how to keep yourself safe. At the same time, I was watching my cousins go through different experiences. My, 
mom's side of the family, the side that immigrated from Mexico, really struggled financially. And my father's side was more educated and had more financial resources. On my mom's side of the family, there were a lot more issues with unintended pregnancies than on my dad's side of the family. So I really got to see how economic resources and educational resources played into it. And I don't think that I could talk about it that articulately as a child or as an adolescent, but I could tell that something was different in the way that my mom's side of the family dealt with reproduction and sexuality and fertility compared to my father's side of the family. Now, we're not talking about ancient history here. This is really just, I mean, people can't see through the podcast, of course, but you know, you're young. This, this is not all that long ago. <laughs> the 90s. I mean, of course, now we know, you know, from CDC data, the teen birth rate is low, lower, I think, than it's been in a long time. Mm -hmm. does, does that necessarily mean, or do you think that we as a society are doing a better job in 2019 mm -hmm. talking about sex and safety and women's health? Yeah, you know, there are a lot of hypotheses about why the teenage birth rate is so low right now. Um, I think there's fairly good evidence that the um, contraceptive mandate through the Affordable Care Act making all contraception cost-free to patients is a huge reason why that rate is down. And then another reason would be our push to for IUDs and implants. So long-acting reversible contraceptives, um, you know, birth control that doesn't rely on user decision-making every single day um, has been shown to be much more effective at lowering unintended pregnancy rates. We will sort of get into the, some of the specific forms of birth control later, but um, I want to continue a little bit more with your story and sort of the deepening and broadening interest that you have in this. And, and you had a second formative. The first one was when you were eight years old. The second formative experience was when you were in medical school, I believe. Mm -hmm. You said it was the first time you actually saw a woman die. Yeah, I was actually in residency. So I was doing my OBGYN residency. Um, I knew that I wanted to provide the scope of reproductive health care to women um, from prenatal care, delivery care, and abortion care. Um, I hadn't decided if I wanted to pursue fellowship training or subspecialty training in abortion. Um, I had more envisioned myself as just being a generalist OBGYN. Um, I had a big interest in international travel and global health care. So during my third year of OBGYN residency, I went to Kenya um, and practiced in, in run one of the rural health clinics. Um, my second week I was there, we had a woman come into the hospital um, who, <clears throat> who we suspected of having a self-induced abortion, a self-managed abortion. Um, the aunt that came with her said that she delivered a quote-unquote stillbirth baby at home. Um, the placenta was still inside and the woman had been bleeding for a long time and, and looked very, very ill. Um, by the time we rounded on her and saw her, she was barely conscious. She was sitting in a pool of her own blood and we were able to rush her to the operating room for an emergency DNC, which is a procedure that we do to clean out the uterus. Um, as we were removing the placenta, um, you know, pieces of her uterus were also coming out as well. Um, so it was clear that this, um, she had had this placenta in place for, for a long time. 
um, we decided the best decision at that point would be to convert to a hysterectomy. Um, so we opened her, we saw what looked like a quite necrotic uterus or uterus in which the tissue was not viable um, and we did the hysterectomy. Um, she was stable at the time we closed. Um, we were able to get her penicillin and some blood products, definitely not to the degree that she would have in the United States, but we were able to do something and she was stable at the end of the procedure. Um, sometime when I, so when we finished the case, I was very proud that we had saved her life and felt really good about the work that we had done. The next morning, seeing her was the first thing that I wanted to do. So I went over to their sort of ICU level of care space and she wasn't there. And when I spoke to people, I found out that she died of respiratory arrest, um, which was soul crushing for me. Um, this was a 24 year old college student who had a bright future ahead of her. She was the kind of woman who was gonna change the culture for women in, in Kenya by, you know, pursuing a, you know, a higher education. You're listening to Dr. Lou Ireland, an OBGYN at UMass Memorial Healthcare and Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UMass Medical School. Right now in the United States, this is a big political conversation that's happening. Did you ever think that I mean, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Did you ever think that this would still be one of the leading conversations in our society? Absolutely not. I went into this feeling like the right to abortion was safe and secure in this country. And it wasn't until the last year that I realized that that might not always be the case. And do you have any advice for women or, or people out there, who, uh, male or female, who are really concerned about protecting this right? I and mean, what, what do you tell people? What kind of advocacy do you engage in? Yeah, I think it is so important more than ever now for all American citizens who believe in protecting reproductive choice. I think it's the right time for anyone to speak up. I think the voices that are most commonly heard are the voices of politicians and occasionally the voice of physicians. And it makes the, the idea of abortion seem very, very siloed and very rare. In reality, one in four women will have an abortion um, before the age of 45. So when we say everyone loves someone who's had an abortion, that really is true. Um, so I think that the more we can normalize abortion, the more we can have the conversations that this is not a rare procedure, that this is a routine part of medical care, the same way labor and delivery care is, prenatal care is, contraceptive care is. And a decision that's made for a variety of reasons. Correct. Yeah. Um, I think the only person who can make the decision is the pregnant person. Let's talk about birth control now, because there are so you know so many options, but there are also so many common myths you say that you mm -hmm. still debunk when you have uh, patients in, in the room. So when when planning families, women do have lots of choices. The birth control pill is uh, about ninety four percent effective, mm -hmm. but there are lots of other effective strategies. So what's on your mind? What's on your patients' minds in mm -hmm. terms of birth control? So I would say the most important take home message about contraception 
is that there is no one right method, no one best method. So we are fortunate to live in a time now where we have a range of contraceptive options, um, just as we have dozens of different types of people who want to prevent pregnancy, we fortunately have many different types of options. So people really can choose what fits best for both for their personal priorities and their lifestyle. I've really noted, uh, and you mentioned these earlier, uh, over the past 10 years or so, uh, seems like IUDs, long-term implants, are more popular than ever before. Is there a reason behind that? Is the safety improving? Mm -hmm. So the IUDs of late have been very safe for a very long time. So when we think about um, IUDs that were not safe, we're really talking about IUDs that were present in the 70s, and most notably the Dalcon Shield, um, which led to pelvic infections. And even though that happened over 40 years ago, and our IUDs are completely differently made right now, we're still experiencing distrust that has resulted from what happened back in the 70s. But just to be clear, today the, I, the IUD options that are available to women today are very safe, very effective, Correct. and there are multiple forms, some with Correct. hormonal uh, with hormones as part of the intervention and some not? Both type of IUDs that we have on the market today are extremely safe. Um, there, in someone who has an IUD placed without an STD at the time, um, they have no increased risk of infection, no increased risk of infertility. Um, their fertility bounces back as soon as you take out the IUD. We have two kind of classes of IUDs on the market. One is a hormonal IUD that contains a very tiny dose of the hormone levonorgestrel. Um, it's great for women who don't really like the hormonal side effects that come with the pill or the patch or the ring. Um, since it acts locally in the uterus, you don't have any systemic side effects. Um, so the nice thing about the hormonal IUD is it lasts up to seven years, it lightens your periods or makes them go away. It's a great treatment for painful periods. You don't have to remember to do anything um, to maintain the contraceptive effect. And as soon as you take it out, the, your, your fertility returns. And like you said, there are pros and cons to everything. So with an IUD or the pill, you still need to worry about sexually transmitted diseases. Mm -hmm. um, how do you advise patients you know, to sort of consider both of those risks? So you know, I like to have a discussion with my patients about what their sexual life is like and what their individual risk factors are for transmission of STIs. Um, and then I have a very frank conversation with them. And I, I let my patients know about the lack of STI protection with all the birth control methods, that this is only gonna protect you from getting pregnant and that if you additionally want prevention of sexually transmitted infections, you need to use a barrier method as well. So uh, is there anything that you really wish people knew about birth control? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say the two most common myths I hear are the fear that being on birth control for long amounts of time is going to decrease their ability to get pregnant. Not true. Not true. We actually have a great study looking at women who are trying to conceive, and they broke up the group in between women who had recently been on the birth control pill and women who 
were not. And the women who had been on the birth control pill actually got pregnant faster. The other fear that I hear about is the fear of something bad happening if you've been on birth control for a long time. So there's a very, this very common misconception that you shouldn't be on birth control for too much of your life. Mm. Um, and, and that also is a mistruth. It is completely unfounded. We know that women who are on birth control have lower rates of uterine cancer, lower weight rates of um, ovarian cancer, lower rates of colon cancer, um, and no decrease in fertility. So there is no bad effect from being on, on birth control for a long period of time. That's very reassuring to hear. Yes. And before I let you go, one last question about hormone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about that? It's been it's been hailed as the, you know, the miracle, and then it's been denounced as dangerous. It, it, what's, where do we stand today in 2019? Yeah, yeah, in 2019, I will say that the role of hormone replacement therapy is very individualized for each patient. So does hormone replacement therapy increase your risk of heart attacks and strokes? Yes. Um, is that increase in risk high? It totally depends on who you are. If in someone who doesn't exercise, has a lot of medical comorbidities like heart disease or high blood pressure, that increased risk is gonna be much higher than in someone who exercises regularly, has a really healthy diet, is otherwise healthy. Um, the other important thing to note about hormone replacement therapy is the only real indication for it are hot flashes that are disruptive to a woman's life. So, um, you know, it's not going to prevent you from getting wrinkles. It's not going to make you Darn. look younger. <laughs> it's not going to do very much else. It's not going to help with sleep disturbances or mood changes. Those are all unfortunate things that happen during the process of entering menopause. Um, so one shouldn't jump to HRT thinking all of those things are gonna be cured. That's great clarification. So if you are a woman maybe approaching or in menopause, you're having hot flashes that you feel are disrupting your life, talk to your doctor about exactly. whether hormone replacement therapy exactly. makes sense for you. Sound like an ad on television right now. <laughs> <laughs> talk to your doctor. Dr. Lou Ireland, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. You can find her on Twitter at LIrelandMD. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Thank you for listening. Keep up to date with everything happening at UMass Medical School by following us on Facebook at UMass Med, on Twitter at UMass Medical, and on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School.